So as you probably have already seen in your bulletin, we're starting a new sermon series through Ezra and Nehemiah, which are books that are rarely, seldom preached on. You may not have read anything from Ezra or Nehemiah in quite some time, or it's possible you've never even read the books um, at all. And I think that's part of the the fun of just jumping into something that is uh, entirely and completely different. So we're going to do that. I, I try not in my opening sermons in a sermon series to give you too much background, but of course some of that is necessary as, as we begin. We have to go back 2,500 years to the time when Nebuchadnezzar conquered the people of God and deported them to the, his capital city in Babylon, where they experienced 70 years of exile. But in the year 538 BC, the, the geopolitical landscape shifts dramatically, and a new empire takes control of the Mesopotamian region. That, the event, that, that happening, is narrated for us in a famous passage in the book of Daniel chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall, where we read that Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, decides to have this massive drunken party. And so he invites a thousand of his closest associates, and they are there in the palace getting you know, plastered and Belshazzar commands that his servants go to the treasury and pull out all of the gold and silver vessels that his father had taken from the Jerusalem temple, which had previously had been used for the Lord's worship. And so they start filling up these vessels with wine, and, you know, they're toasting each other, and um, they're just, you know, sloshed. And in their drunken, drunken stupor, they all of a sudden see a hand appear. And it starts to inscribe something on the wall of the king's palace. These words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. When they realize that it's no alcoholic hallucination, it says that Belshazzar and all his men began to tremble at their core. And so what do they do? They call for Daniel. They, they bring in Daniel, uh, who is known to them. Daniel looks at the uh, writing on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And he says, in essence, your time is up. God has, God has judged you. He has raised up a new ruler in the east who will come and conquer your household. And on that very night, Cyrus, king of Persia, you know, enters and the Babylonian empire falls. The reason this is particularly significant is because the Medo-Persian empire and the Babylonian empire govern in radically different ways. So unlike the Babylonians, the Babylonians are all about plundering their enemies and making their enemies captive and deporting them back to, um, to Babylon. The Persians, they were, we would say, much more tolerant. They would send tribal groups like the Israelites home so that they might rebuild and reestablish themselves in their homelands. The Persians' goal was to create loyal vassal states who would help defend the empire against attack and who would pay their tributes to the king of course, they wanted their taxes. But curiously, interestingly, the, the Persians didn't even send back Persian soldiers to occupy the land. Uh, they were like, largely go home and be self-governing as long as you, you know, protect our eastern or western flank and as long as you pay us our taxes, you know, we're fine. And all of this takes place to fulfill the words of the prophet Jeremiah. We read in Ezra 1.1. 1, 1. That in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, 
the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, who has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me, uh, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Israel, or in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with gold, goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the heads of Judah and Benjamin, the family heads, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithradah, the treasurer who counted them to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And then I should have included verse 9, where the inventory is, um, is there, 9 through 12. This was the inventory. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 silver pans, 30 gold bowls, 410 matching silver bowls, 1,000 other articles. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shesh Bazar brought all these when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we, your family, uh, give our attention to your holy word, we pray that we would hear your voice speaking to us and that we would be satisfied in your presence. Indeed, may our hearts and souls find comfort and refuge in your presence. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask this. Amen. Ezra and Nehemiah, um, <laughs> I admit that I, I feel a certain level of fear and trepidation starting into these books because uh, nobody preaches on them. And um, I, I wonder how difficult it may prove to find, you know, weekly preachable material. But at the same time, I am excited because yeah, it's, it's, it's scripture. It's God's word. It's God, it's God breathed. And you know, even though it's from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, uh, God, I really believe God wants to speak through us. And uh, I'm excited to, to just do something different, as I've already said. Bob Goff is a Christian man, a lawyer, who's written several books. The one that he is most known for, New York Times bestseller, it's entitled Love Does, if you've ever heard of that before. Uh, Bob Goff's interesting. He's, he's the only author that I know of that includes his cell phone number in every one of his books in order to invite people to call them up if they want to talk to him about something. That's pretty bold. Well, in Love Does, I said he's a lawyer. He tells a story of when his clients are going through a deposition, when they are being deposed by other lawyers. It's a very intimidating experience if you've ever gone through that. I mean, you're in a room, a bunch of lawyers peppering you with questions, trying to get you to trip up. He says, I give all my clients the same advice. 
um, the, the same singular piece of advice. I tell them to sit in the chair and place the back of their hands on their knees or, or on their you know, quadriceps and answer all of, their, all of the questions that are asked of them with their palms up. Um, and he says, I'm very serious about this. I threaten to kick their shins under the table if I look down and they don't have their palms up. You say, why would he do that? It's almost impossible be, to be a defensive when your palms are up. It's just kind of this weird, funny, psychological trip. A trick, trip. I guess it's a trip too. But <laughs> that when your palms are up, there's, there's just this sense of I've got nothing to hide and I'm not worried. I'm at peace. I, I can be honest and I can be non-defensive. Virtually none of the people who left Jerusalem 70 years prior returned. You know, that generation died out in Babylon. Uh, the, the generation that came, that, that the ex, this wave of exiles was undoubtedly their children and their grandchildren who returned. And do you have any idea how long it took them to go from what the, the opening of the Persian Gulf there, uh, Iraq, all the way around the, the Fertile Crescent into, uh, into Palestine? It took about five months on foot. It took about the same time that it would take you and me, if we were in really good shape, to travel on foot from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean, you know, depending upon what route that we chose. And what I want to suggest is that they needed to make that five-month journey with palms up. Just under 50,000 Israelites returned in this first wave of exiles, and they really had no idea what they were stepping into. I mean, they had never seen the city of Jerusalem. There were no photographs. There's no, there have been no pictures. Um, that all they had heard were stories about Jerusalem. They hadn't seen the destruction of the city. All they had heard is about the, you know, the pillaging. They hadn't witnessed it. And they really didn't know exactly what was going to be there for them. It was, it was a five-month journey on foot where they had plenty of time to wait and worry and think about all of the uncertainty ab- about their future. And they needed, to, they needed to do that with palms up. I want you to notice how Jeremiah factors prominently in this book and how you see him in the very first verse of Ezra. So Ezra, Ezra is a priest. We will, not, we will not meet Ezra until chapter 7. Nehemiah, we won't meet until the following book. On the front of your bullets, and there's a little bit of background on those guys. But Jeremiah was an Israelite priest who lived and worked in Jerusalem during the final decades before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And, and he warned the people of the, the dire consequences of breaking their covenant with the Lord. Israel had, Judah had violated all the terms of the agreement that were written in the Torah, uh, primarily by adopting the worship of all kinds of Canaanite gods and building idol shrines all over the land. Some of the people had even adopted the horrifying practice of, of Canaanite child sacrifice. So Jeremiah, he develops this theme where he basically calls the people whores. You're prostitutes. Uh, he, he says, your idolatry is adultery. And he preaches an extremely unpopular message, which is simply God is going to destroy his city. God is going to destroy his temple. The temple is the meeting place of heaven on earth. God is going to destroy you. And none of the people were willing to listen to that message. 
Well, here's where it gets interesting. After 20 years of preaching, God speaks to Jeremiah and tells him to do this, to collect all of his sermon manuscripts, all of the poems that he had written, all of the essays, and commit them to writing, which he does by utilizing a scribe whose name was Baruch. He wrote down all of Jeremiah's materials. He, he put it all into a single scroll. And what we know that scroll to be today is the book of Jeremiah. But that scroll, this is where it's interesting, that scroll was taken with the exiles into Babylon. You know, whenever there's a conquest of one people or, or another, it's very hard to know what gets transferred from one place to another. It's, it's hard for us to know how much of the Torah they were able to take back with them, how much of, of the Psalms, but we have a fairly high degree of confidence that the one thing that they had was the scroll of Jeremiah. And in addition to all these words of judgment that he spoke to the previous generation, the latter half of Jeremiah includes these wonderful words of hope. It's a message of hope. Jeremiah picks up on Moses' prediction that after Israel breaks the covenant and goes into exile, God would not abandon his people. Rather, he would renew his covenant with them by transforming their hearts. And no longer would the Torah be inscribed on tablets of stone. No, he says, I will rather write the Torah on the hearts of my own people and heal their rebellion so that they can truly love and follow me and return to the land of their ancestors. There's lots more in Jeremiah, but he also says that a Messiah will be raised up from the line of David and all of the nations. When the Messiah is raised up and Zion, the city of Jerusalem, is raised up, then all the nations will come and recognize Israel's God as the true God. I just find it fascinating that they had five months with Jeremiah's scroll <laughs> to think about all of that as they returned home. Um, I've been dealing with some health problems. Part of the reason why I took three unscheduled weeks of vacation off is because I've been, um, I've been bleeding in my stomach, gastrointestinal bleeding. And the good news is that I, I don't think there's anything like, too bad about it. I mean, you never want to be <laughs> bleeding in your gut, but I've got one more test to be performed, and I, I think it's going to be uh, um, fine. Th those of you who've experienced any kind of bleeding inside your body, you know what it's like. You feel so, like, weak and depleted. You just have absolutely no energy uh, to exercise. I mean, it, it would tire me just to walk up the stairs, uh, let alone— run a half a mile. When I was running a half a mile, I was ready to, you know, keel over and die. And I, I, for basically the last two plus months, you know, I really haven't been able to exercise. And until um, just recently, when I, like the last couple of days, I started to feel myself again. And um, I've had several good runs. Well, on one of my runs this past week, I wanted to test out palms up. <laughs> and so I did the majority of the run you know, just like this, you know, and, um, and just with my eyes up towards heaven, it, it, it was so invigorating, honestly. And the, the words of scripture that just came to mind and, you know, praying and saying, Lord, I have nothing to hide. Whatever you want to say to me, you can say to me. Whatever you want to convict me of, convict me. However you want to encourage me or quiet my fears. And my palms are up. Um, and, and, you know, in the middle of this pandemic, 
we find ourselves asking, you know, the questions, when is this all going to be over? And <laughs> when are we going to get a vaccine? When are we going to have herd immunity? You know, things like that. When is it going to be resolved? We have all of these worries. I think that probably contributed to um, some of my bleeding. But just all these worries about health and economy and jobs and school in the fall. You know, what, what are our kids going to do? Zoom online school all fall again? Or is there going to be some hybrid model? Or is it going to be too risky for them to go into the classroom? And it, we just have all these, this, this malaise of worry. And it stinks, doesn't it? just stinks. But over and over again, you know, the theme in the Bible of waiting on God's promises to be fulfilled and waiting in hope. I mean, these exiles, as I've already said, they were, they were facing tremendous uncertainty about their future. And all they had was potentially the Jeremiah scroll and the words of promise that were there. They had to wait through five months of delays and, and wait through their own screw-ups and just wait, wait, wait for the long four day when messianic age would come and the, the kingdom of God would truly arrive. And I want you to do this now. I want you to take your fists and clench them really tightly. Come on, everybody. And just tense up all of your muscles in your body really tight, okay? And that's how most of us are waiting right now. And this is no way to wait. It's no way to wait. Okay, now, show and tell, right? Let's <laughs> and just take a deep breath and lift your eyes to heaven and call upon Jesus. It is, it is a profound difference. We walk, we pray, we wait, we remember, we hope, we hope, we hope with palms up. Let me show you one more cool thing from the passage related to God's sovereignty, and then we'll be done. When the city of Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, it says in the text, he, he took all of the temple furnishings, the vessels, the several, several bowls, etc., etc. He put them into his own temple, into Marduk's temple, as tribute to Marduk. You know, it was, it was you know, the spoils of war being dedicated, uh, a taunting reminder of how Marduk had defeated Yahweh. And we already talked about how some of those were used in a drunken party. But, you know, inadvertently, by doing this, by putting the objects away in the temple, Nebuchadnezzar inadvertently, through divine sovereignty, ends up protecting and preserving those, those vessels. I mean, it's for that reason that they don't show up on some you know, Babylonian antiquities market <laughs> and aren't in the British Museum today because they were, they were in God's secret way being preserved. And obviously God cared very much that those things we brought back to the city of Jerusalem as a reminder that temple worship will resume again. They're preserved until the time that we got that phrase, God stirred up the... He stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. He, he stirred up the hearts of these different Babylonians who give freewill offerings to help the people of God go back, which is an echo to the Egypt and the Exodus and how the Egyptians gave them offerings and sent them back. The, 
you know, all of that's going on in the background. But this very powerful emperor, both of these very powerful emperors are being moved around the chessboard by the secret hand of the Lord. You know, he's obviously planned it all. One of the RUF uh, coordinators, RUF is our, our denominational campus ministry. The guy in, the, in, I think he's in Mississippi, Les Newsome is his name. His wife's name is Ginger. When he turned 40, she threw him a surprise birthday party and it completely bamboozled him. <laughs> he, says, he says, I'm one of the most suspicious people that you will ever meet. I, you know, I try to deconstruct every move that you're making and it shocked it just shocked him that his wife could pull this off because his wife, he said, my wife is just a very, what you see is what you get kind of person. So he writes, a couple of weeks ago, I innocently stepped into our church's fellowship hall where over 250 people screamed, surprise. It turns out that my wife had orchestrated a two-month plot to surprise me in celebrating the grim anniversary of 40 years already passed on earth. <laughs> By anyone's estimation, it was a total success. Not only was I surprised that night by the overwhelming show of love and affection from those who had traveled near and far to celebrate with me, I was equally unable to point to anything over the last two months that might have made me say, aha, that's what she's up to. (laughs) My wife, Ginger, and then he uh, says in parentheses, if that is her real name, (laughs) was quite proud of herself. Most of the rest of the evening was spent catalog, cataloging the wealth of the web of stealth and intrigue spun by the most good-natured, non-conniving person I know. She told me all about fake email addresses, secret Facebook groups, about hiding messages and sneaking around my fickle schedule. You know, to this point in our life of marriage, I had thought my wife was just entirely incapable of that level of of good-natured deception. Then he cuts to the chase. He says, think about it, Christian. What if at the end of time you suddenly discover that every random or hard event of your past life had been meticulously pieced together into a beautiful tapestry, which when seen in hindsight and unfold, it unfolded a persistent cosmic affection towards you and to his church, the people of God. You know, what if you discovered, what if you discovered that it was God's hand that stirred this heart and that, that it was God's kind fatherly hand which raised up and tore down? What if you discovered that every tragedy the church, the people of God experience is simply overcome by an immeasurably greater triumph. Well, thanks to a surprise 40th birthday, I now have a palpable sensation stored in my memory of what I hope to feel one of these days. That when I open my eyes on the other side of death, there will appear the entire creation screaming, surprise! And there we will find the secret hand of God was directing it all. Amen.